The October 2018 Time Magazine cover story asks the question, Can American men and women ever be equal? Answers and positive models come from an unexpected yet not surprising place. Sherry Dew shares her experience on this week's edition of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? Sherry Dew is the executive vice president of Deseret Management Corp. Uh, She also served in the past in leadership positions in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Women's Organization, the Relief Society, and she was the White House delegate to the Commission on the Status of Women to the United Nations. Sherry, thanks for joining us today. Nice to be here. Thank you. So recently you were up in Seattle, Washington. Mm -hmm. President Nelson, president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was speaking to 50,000 people at Safeco Mm -hmm. Field, and in an event prior Uh, To that event, a special meeting with community leaders, religious leaders, business leaders, you had the opportunity to uh, address that group in terms of what was happening in Seattle and and around the world. Share a little perspective uh, in terms of uh, what you shared up in Seattle. Well, I was invited by some of those event organizers to take literally four minutes. So this was not a discourse by any means. But I said, in four minutes, could you please uh, outline for the, again, the the business leaders, the community leaders who will be there, what the role of women is in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? And I said, four minutes, really? Okay, well, how much damage can we do in four minutes? But it was a privilege, and in fact, I had a lot of conversations with individuals who were there prior to and after this uh, preliminary event. So my purpose that day was basically to give a very broad stroke of explaining the different capacities in which women work and serve inside of the church. Mm. I talked about my time in the Relief Society General Presidency, what I saw on the humanitarian side, um, reflected for them about uh, this call that was made to the women of the church essentially when the conflict was going on in Kosovo. And um, I think we needed 40,000 quilts to help prepare refugees in Kosovo or refugees from that conflict for the upcoming winter. And we sent out a call to the women of the church, and within like 60 days, we had 140,000, and we could never turn the spigot off. (laughs) I'm guessing that even today, (laughs) trucks are rolling in out of the humanitarian center with quilts in them just because there is a readiness. Mm -hmm. Women in the church are at the ready. They're ready to serve. They're ready to help. They're ready to do anything. And part of that is because of the way we're trained in the church. It's a remarkable training program when you think about it. Um, Sometimes there are those who think that women don't have a very distinguished role in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I just always find that really puzzling and a little perplexing. Uh, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I'm watching as a 14-year-old girl in my own congregation walks to the pulpit in sacrament meeting or our regular worship service. She's poised. She's smart. She's articulate. She gives this great discourse on joy, talking about where joy comes from, and I'm thinking, Okay, where do you see that? Where do you see that kind of preparation? So from the time we're little, we learn to speak in public, we learn to lead, we learn to organize, plan, prepare, rally people. It's just we just get trained, and we get trained, quote-unquote, because we're usually serving. And one of the things that I've learned through the years is that once you've been in charge of something, so you've been the president of some organization in the church, let's say, that's when you actually really know what you hope everybody else does. Right. So when you're no longer the leader, you know how to help the leader. So we know how to lead and we know how to follow. Mm. And that's part of the reason that uh, I think women, uh, Latter-day Saint women, are 
they're just capable. They know how to do things. They know how to reach out. They know how, again, they know how to lead and they know how to follow. Yeah. Very fascinating. I had a conversation with one of my daughters uh, who is uh, down in California now, uh, but working with a lot of her peers across the country. And uh, she she called me yesterday, and we were talking about that preparation that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. She said, "No one knows how to give a talk in public. No one yeah. knows how to organize or or you know hold people accountable or follow up." Uh, so those those lessons are are critical, not only in preparing women for leadership, but there's also a component of that that prepares men to follow mm-hmm. that kind of leadership and to listen and to listen to be willing to listen to. I mean, and um, I would guess that. If you start doing the math, they're probably – women have in, – in the church, women have about as many leadership spots as mm-hmm. men do. Mm-hmm. Maybe not quite as many, but almost. They probably give about as many lessons. They probably, te- they probably speak from the pulpit about as many times, probably teach about as many classes. So again, if you are a regular participant in the church, you're going to have you know, what we call a calling – Mm-hmm. an assignment mm-hmm. that lasts for some period of time and you're going to do it and then you're going to get a new one and you're going to do something different and then you're going to get another one and they're going to do something different. So one day you can be the Stake Relief Society president and uh, two years from now you could be planning sharing time for the children, which is right. a primary activity for little children. I would add to that that, again, if you just do the math, we've got congregations in, oh, 190-ish countries or so. I don't know the exact number of congregations that we have, but if you just if you just add up the number of women serving in legitimate bona fide leadership positions right now, as we speak, there's probably four or five hundred thousand women in all these countries who are leading. They're right. leading women. They're leading children. They're leading young women, and they're they're teaching doctrine. They're proselyting as missionaries. We just learn to do things. Yeah. It's real simple. Absolutely. So going to this Time Magazine cover, it was so interesting. They had the uh, Declaration of Independence on the front cover, <laughs> uh, October issue of Time Magazine. Uh, and they had, of course, the the famous line, uh, all men are created yeah. equal. And then, of course, in red, yeah, uh, with a little up yeah. aerial, era, uh, you know, and yeah. women. But then they posited the question, uh, can American men and women ever be equal? And, and to look for solutions to that. Um, it was kind of a, a surprising, not surprising thing in terms of where that is actually happening. And one is is right here in the state of Utah as it relates to higher education. Uh, we've got five out of eight of the colleges and uh-huh. universities in the uh, Utah system of higher education uh, that are being led by extraordinary women leaders. Uh, over 70% of the college students in Utah are led by, by a woman president. And, hmm, and remarkable. Yeah. You know, why do you why do you see that happening? Why is that? Should we be surprised or not surprised by that? Well, and I'd add one more thing. The uh, uh, BYU has announced the uh, the new incoming dean of the Marriott School. I don't think she's in her post quite yet, but will be very soon. Her name is Bridget Madrian, I believe. Uh, currently, a professor of public policy at Harvard. This is a mm-hmm. talented woman. So you start to look. I mean, you can look around. The the former dean of the University of Utah Medical School. Right. Uh, Dr. Vivian Lee was a a very accomplished leader. Um, I think it's an interesting thing because sometimes Utah gets the rap that says, well, women, you know, they're – I don't like this phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway. That's a state that's just barefoot and pregnant Mm -hmm. and nobody actually knows how to do anything and and the women are oppressed and da-da-da-da-da-da. And again, it just hasn't been my experience. Now, I acknowledge there are many – 
remarkable women in this state who have devoted themselves to their families and their remarkable mothers. And some work outside the home and some don't. They all work. Right. I, I don't see a harder job anywhere than being a mother. So they're all working. But but yes, we, we may have, I don't know, I don't even know if we have more full-time mothers in Utah than we do in other states. But what I would say is I think our state is conditioned to listen to women. Mm. Again, if you look at the dominant faith group, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they're listening to women every week mm-hmm. alongside the men. Going back to the can men and women ever be equal, I hate the equal word. I think that's the wrong word. Mm. But can can men and women both flourish and shine and achieve their own, what, achieve their own maximum capacity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And my experience also is that in any setting – uh, and I think I've learned this in the in 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 work at work actually that better decisions, better results come out when men and women are working together because they they all contribute something slightly different to the mix. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, one. Uh uh, Susan Madsen, uh, Women Leadership Project down at Utah Valley University, uh, made an interesting comment uh, on that very issue in terms of getting to the best results uh, and talked about it, particularly in, in academia and in, in research places, um, that, it, that it really wasn't so much about how many were in there. But she said that uh, having women and men in the conversation can affect the nature of both the questions asked mm-hmm. and the findings found. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's interesting in terms of that. It's, it, it's really a, a oneness is not sameness as opposed to equal. Yeah, equal is equal's a funny word, and sameness is a funny word. But, boy, I'm telling you, sometimes I, I could go back to a company that I used to lead, and inevitably, if there was a really bad decision made, a really a, a bad mistake where we just missed it on something, we just blew it on something, when you tracked it back to say, okay, where was that decision made? Only in the spirit of how do we improve it for the future, inevitably, it was made by either all women or all men. It was just uncanny. And so I like to be in a room where there are men and women counseling together because I think the questions do change. I think we hear things differently. We Mm -hmm. tend to. Mm -hmm. I think we tend to focus on certain things. And I would readily acknowledge that uh, I am am often in a room where I'm the only woman Mm -hmm. with lots of men. And, um, And I love actually working with men. I respect them. I admire them. They tend to have talents and gifts I will never have. And I think it's fair to say that when I can see other women in the room, they're hearing different things, and it contributes to the overall conversation in a very distinctive way. I just think that's true. I just think that's a true principle that men and women coming together, actually counseling together, yeah, they come up with very good results. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, I want to go through uh, these these five women who are leading sure. the, the major uh, colleges and universities here in Utah because each one has a, a unique story and a u- unique perspective that I think leads to a principle. Uh, and I'd love to have you play off of these thoughts uh, with your experience both as an executive in business, also as an auxiliary leader of one of those – has to be the largest women's organization in the world I in think the, it the is. Relief Society – one um, of, for sure. Uh, so let's let's start at UVU. Uh, we had the opportunity as the editorial board of the Deseret mm-hmm. News to uh, have President Jimenez uh, in last week. And wow, talk about a firecracker uh, of a person. But the, the principle that I, I came away with was this uh, – she kept referring to it as a community of kindness. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting back when she was five years old mm-hmm. and these nuns uh, literally lifted her out and gave her an opportunity to get an education mm-hmm. and then to see that roll into 
her ability to speak seven languages and advanced degrees and international experience and uh, studies in Russian uh, as a as a diplomat and and negotiations and running uh, Microsoft in in Asia, um, it just amazing uh, things. But it started from this community of kindness uh, and a and a focus on that. <clears throat> and as a, from a women's leadership perspective. How do you see that in both business, in our communities, and, and in our country? I would almost compare it to something my dad used to say, and that was, and, and he's not the only one, he used to quote it, and that is, it's hard for people to do, he used to say, it's hard for people to do their best when they're worried about where their next meal comes from. And that, for me, compares with the statement that there's no creativity in a minefield. And I just, um, I suppose that, I suppose that one of the things that uh, look there can there are women who are leaders who are hard to deal with. There's no question. But I would guess that most female leaders have a tendency to see the human side mm-hmm. and to care about the human side and to care about which is not to say men don't. Right. I am <laughs> right. not saying that at all. I'm just saying there is a natural empathy that that when you're sitting across the desk from someone who's just blown it. Mm-hmm. Maybe cost a lot of money or or done something that didn't work well. There is an instinct to say, "How will we do it better next time?" Mm, that's great, great, great leadership lesson. And uh, look what she's and look what she's learned. She's had that. It looks like her whole life. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's go to Ruth Watkins up at the University of Utah, small town Iowa, a graduate of Kansas. So go go Jayhawks. Go I Jayhawks. That, I know that matters. <laughs> uh, but she <clears throat> she has focused on this idea of making a contribution, and and it's this idea that we're never really happy or satisfied unless we're contributing. We're using our gifts and talents on a regular basis. Uh, and you've been able to see this in many unique situations mm-hmm. in terms of how do we maximize our talents and abilities to contribute to society? Couldn't agree more. I think we each have a divine orbit. That's the way I like to talk about mm-hmm. it. And I've heard, her, I've seen her say that, and I've thought, oh, uh, President Watkins, I'd like to meet you and talk to you because I totally agree. I think we each have a divine orbit. There are people we are uniquely prepared and able to reach and influence and places that we're uniquely prepared to go and to have influence. And I think that we're wired that way and that if we're not there, we're not happy. So I'm totally with her that I think part of our part of the challenge of life is figuring out where are we supposed to be and then being there and doing the best we can, whatever that is in the moment. Yeah, I, I love that divine orbit because it also plays into why so many are unhappy, that divine uh-huh. discontent, mm-hmm. because we're not uh, mm-hmm. using those those natural Absolutely. Channels. All right, uh, Noelle uh, Cockett is up at Utah State uh-huh. uh, University, uh, another farmer's Aggies. daughter. <laughs> so grew up on a ranch in Montana. Uh, and she came away from th- this experience when she was uh, when she was young. Her father passed away. Uh, they had six children. Her mom put herself through nursing school. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of that grit, determination, mm-hmm. and we're going to be okay. And mm-hmm. I know you've seen women do that around the world. It is often, it's often the strength of the mother that, if I, if I just even look at my own family, let alone friends, it's often the strength of the mother that when it comes to the penetrating influence on the children, when their world is rocked by something, uh, maybe the death of a father or something else, it can be a divorce, it can be other things, or serious illness or something that just rocks your world for a period of time. It's, again, I am not ever minimizing the impact of fathers, which I think is absolutely fundamentally, profoundly important. 
But that mother, that woman, often is the one that pulls those kids through. I've seen it in my own family. And um, I just think there is a kind of courage that's instinctive almost inside of women. I'm not sure we credit women with that, but I believe that's a true statement. Uh, I, I, uh, as someone who has seven sisters, a mother, a wife, and three daughters, <laughs> uh, there, there is definitely that kind if of If for nothing other strength. than political safety, you better agree with that. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, I, still, I still have a bruise on my shoulder from when my sister Vicky taught me how to box out in basketball. There you or, go. or a, a bruise on my hip from my uh, best friend's now mother. That's, that's a girl after my heart. I learned in Kansas, you learn how to play basketball, and you absolutely learn how to box out. That's right. Denise uh, Huftelin at uh, Salt Lake Community College, uh, her focus and the focus of, of her organization uh, is really centered in this idea of the, the strength of diversity, of valuing diversity. She often talks about how their classrooms are are at their best when they are diverse. And they have classes that have you know 16-year-olds and 69-year-olds and every ethnic group. Uh, and she talks about a class only being at its best uh, when there is mm-hmm. strength in that diversity, valuing it, recognizing it, um, and looking for the lessons there. Totally agree with that. That's just a better amplification of what I was trying to say earlier about I want men and women in the room and we're discussing something difficult. And yes, if now you can add in different cultural points of view, different points of view about uh, just about life and about how things work, whether you're talking about uh, socioeconomic status or marital status or anything else, I just think it makes the conversation richer. It's part of the reason that travel, though it's exhausting, has its benefits. Yeah. Because you see people everywhere who are confronting the same problems but finding often different kinds of solutions mm. for those problems. Uh, I couldn't agree more. She's, I think she's exactly right. All right. Then finally, uh, Beth uh, Dobkin at uh, Westminster mm-hmm. College uh, and uh, I love how she frames that what everyone really wants, uh, particularly in a college setting, as she looks at her students, is uh, looking for identity, community, and purpose. Uh, give, me, give me an example of, of women leading and helping people attain that identity, community, and purpose. I think that that, uh, again, I resonate very much with, with that. I'll tell you an example that struck me. And this is not somebody I know personally, but some years ago I happened to flip on a program on TV, and it was a feature story on a female Marine, and she was being lauded for some heroic act that she had performed. Somebody was interviewing her and kept saying, how would you do that? How did you do this very heroic thing under difficult circumstances? And she, she would give her answer, and clearly the interviewer was not happy with the answer because he kept coming back. Now, let's talk again about that, that episode and how did you do that? Well, you know, a Marine is, they characteristically have this demeanor. They do right. not break, right? This Right. But after about the fourth time that this guy asked her that, she finally kind of broke her, her Marine-like demeanor. And she said, look, I'm a Marine, okay? And that's what Marines do. They're mm. brave under fire. Mm. I thought, wow, you want to talk about the power of identity, how you see yourself? Absolutely, I think, propels you in terms of what you're able to do and willing to do. That's why I think someone coming to understand who they are and who they've always been is a crucial life learning. And that once you start to get a feeling for that, it helps you figure out what your divine orbit is. Yeah. So as, as we look at these women and, and we start to, to look at different leadership components and, and what that means, uh, I want to hit just a, a couple of other things. Uh, one interesting thing and, and that... Uh, 
with all of the political shenanigans going on in mm-hmm. the in the country today, uh, women in politics uh, is an interesting thing. Uh, obviously, there aren't as many women as men, mm-hmm. uh, even though the numbers prove out that when a woman does choose to run, her chances of winning are every bit as good as mm-hmm. her male counterpart. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think needs to happen in order – uh, for that number to continue to go? What do you think the advantages are of women leadership in the political space? I, I'm not the, I'm probably not the best one to respond to that question because there are others, <clears throat> excuse me, in this state who are much better versed on this. But from my observation, mm-hmm. it looks as though that's one of the areas in this state, in the state of Utah, where we're lagging a bit behind. Now, there seem to be a number of very accomplished women who are in the Utah state legislature. But with one or two exceptions, I haven't seen them have a dominant voice. And I would like to see women have um, some dominant roles alongside men, not instead of, mm-hmm. but alongside. Because I'll just repeat it again, what I said earlier, I my personal experience has been that better results occur when there are men and women in the room who all have a voice. It can't just be secretaries lining the wall. It needs to be women and men who have a voice and who contribute in a spirit of collaboration to try to reach not what their best idea is, but what the best idea is. So I do think that's an area in this state where we need some help. And and maybe we do in the country as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely across the country. This is not a uh, Utah-specific challenge uh, for sure. So I want to hit uh, two things quickly um, that I think often are, are a challenge for women, uh, particularly as they try to move into leadership roles um, and as they use those gifts in that divine orbit to, to really make a difference. Uh, and that the two areas are, are, are first this whole uh, social media-driven comparison Thing. I, I've always said that viewing life through comparison is always fatal vision. Yeah, no kidding. And I think uh, women have a particular challenge with that. And then the, the second component uh, is, is the imposter syndrome, that feeling that if people knew how really insecure I am or if people mm-hmm. knew how you know awful a person <laughs> I really am or how weak I really am, you know, they, they'd run me out of the building. Uh, and so address those two things from a women's perspective in terms of comparison and then that imposter syndrome. So I let's go with the imposter syndrome first. Yeah, I totally get that. Uh, uh, a very good friend that I have whom I've known for years says, you know, Sherry, you're one of the two most insecure women I've ever met. And I, and I finally said to her, and what's your point with that? Like, what, what's the problem with that? I'm not sure I've ever had the sensation in my life that I had something under control or that I actually deserved a seat in the room or at the table. It's just not a position from which I operate. And so I don't actually know how to address that. I finally decided at my age to just roll with it. It's, it is what it is, and I'm going to do the best I can with the things I've been asked to do and, and go forward. But I do think it's real. I don't think I'm particularly unique in that, probably. The other question in terms of comparing, oh my goodness, um, it's a trap. I'm not sure if men do it like we do. No. <laughs> I get, you know, this one it, I can speak of. Yeah. <laughs> it it's not the same. <laughs> it doesn't look like you do, but and it, but you can never know, right? But we fall into that trap sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I remember something that Marjorie Hinckley, who was the wife of President Gordon B. Hinckley, who was a former president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, something Marjorie Hinckley said that just cracked me up. She said, you know, I think that I would like to be 55 that age through all eternity because it's before your body has started to break down. But 
you've stopped competing and just settled down to living. There is a certain thing that comes with age. I wish that I had a a prescription for helping you get there before you hit 50 or 55 or 45 or 65 or wherever it works, wherever it happens. I do think that the best way to try to attack stopping worrying about how you compare with the woman next to you, because there's always somebody fatter and always somebody skinnier. There's always somebody smarter and always somebody that doesn't have your particular training. You, You can find everything. But to me, it's finding your divine orbit. I, I remember uh, Sister Hinckley uh, sharing, uh, I think it was a note she wrote to her daughter that said she was on the sixth day of her new training program, uh-huh. and she was pleased to report she was only five days behind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's just this thing about saying, if you figure out where your orbit is, and if I could put it this way, where does God want you to be? How can you help your fellow man the most? Uh, where can you, with whatever talents and gifts you've been given, where can you have the most influence and do the most good for others. If you can figure out where that is, some of the tendency to compare and compete melts away. Mm. So as we as we come down the home stretch, I want to hit one last area. This uh, is about your fourth last question. <laughs> I'm not gonna, complaining, <laughs> just saying. It's the false it's the false finish. <laughs> okay. I've I've mastered it okay, now. Okay, here we go. <laughs> uh, so there are are many uh, movements for women and women leadership, uh, and some of them seem to be caught in this uh, grievance mentality, uh, that everything is a, a grievance against men, that it's, you know, it's women or men, um, and they seem to get caught in what they don't have or what's not there. Mm-hmm. And, and you've had experience uh, as a biographer, uh, amongst very extraordinary men, you've you've worked in corporate settings and in the United Nation. You, you've been in all of those settings, and I think you have a unique perspective there. Um, and I heard you share one time um, uh, an example from from President Russell M. Nelson uh, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints uh, in terms of that not having a scarcity mentality. Uh, as he was doing his early research uh, mm-hmm. in in the heart, so maybe you can tell us a little bit. So, how do we get past the grievance mentality, and how do we get to the abundance mentality? You know, I had somebody tell me just the other day, somebody who works very closely with him every day, uh, who himself is an extremely bright, capable, talented person, said, "President Nelson is a remarkable combination." He said he may be one of the brightest men I've ever met, which in and of itself was quite a statement because. This person has traveled in very elevated intellectual circles. And he said, but he may be the most humble person I've ever met. And that's an amazing combination. And whether we're talking men or women, to me, that's what we could aspire to. So the circumstance you're telling about, if we have time to tell it, I'll tell you this story. It's amazing. So here he is. In medical school, he's taught that um, you cannot touch the human heart. Any physician who attempts it will be discredited as a physician. Then he's off to the University of Medi- uh, Minnesota Medical School as an intern, where he lands himself on the team building the first ever heart-lung machine and goes on to become the first person to do open-heart surgery in Utah, one of about the first three or four in the country. He's absolutely recognized around the world as one of the preeminent early open-heart surgery pioneers. He tells the story about how in those early years of pioneering, where they're now doing open-heart surgeries, but patients are dying. I mean, they're learning. Some are living, some are dying, and they're learning as they go. So when they would go to medical conventions, and there again, there are just a few of them, they would share everything. 
what they were learning, what worked, what didn't work. Have you tried this? I just tried that. Here's why I think that works and so forth. And he was describing just this interplay and sharing of information and knowledge. Somebody in the room when I heard him tell this story said, weren't you worried about getting the credit? And he said, um, you know, getting the patent or getting the getting getting written up in the medical journal that you were the one who did this first surgery or whatever. And he said, I mean, he kind of had this stunned look on his face. He said, oh, no, our competition, direct quote, our competition was not with each other. Our competition was with, was against death, disease, and ignorance. That's what we were competing against. And in that moment, I thought, oh, my goodness, what would happen in our world if men and women everywhere said, I'm going to share anything that I've learned. I'm going to share with you. Will you share with me? We'll all get better together. I know it sounds kind of, you know, like a walk through the hollyhocks, and it's hard to imagine with what we see playing out on the stage in in our world today and in Congress today and so forth. But can you imagine? His belief, I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but his belief is that we are so accomplished today in heart surgery because of those early years where really great men and women shared what they were learning. And if you could write a formula, that's the one you'd write. So President Nelson going from a a surgeon with that abundance mentality uh, to the leader of a world religious organization as prophet and president of the church, uh, who also has an interesting, uh, has been influenced in interesting ways by women. Uh, Mm -hmm. Nine daughters. Nine daughters. and, uh, And Wendy Watson Nelson, who is... Uh, remarkable, remarkable in her own right, <laughs> as was his first wife, Dancel, who passed away, uh, ironically, from a heart attack mm-hmm. with him sitting next to her holding her hand and there wasn't – he tried to revive her and couldn't. And she was a remarkably strong woman and Wendy is a remarkably strong woman, talented, smart, uh, educated, and he's he has nine daughters who are just amazing and a whole raft of granddaughters and even more great-granddaughters. Um, you see their influence with him and his influence on them. Again, it's this beautifully reciprocal situation. Therefore what? Well, normally at the end of the program, we I get to do the therefore what. <laughs> what do we do next? What does it mean? Uh, so the first time in our therefore what history, I'm going to let you give the therefore what. What should we come away as we've talked about these extraordinary women, we've talked about leadership, we've talked about uh, women around the world. Uh, what's the therefore what that we all should be thinking about as we leave today? For me, the therefore what is is the point that you've hit on several times and and I've tried to as well, and that is that we do better when we work together. When we learn from each other, we draw upon each other's strengths rather than, rather than uh, kind of bristle because I'll tell you, in an earlier stage in, uh, in my career in, in working, and I never really thought I'd have a career, but that's what has happened. And so I remember being kind of annoyed at some of the men in the room, just thinking, oh, my gosh, don't they get it? And boy, did that ever change when I became the leader. And I realized how much I needed what they had because they had things I did not have and would never have them. So for me, the therefore what is, imagine if we could actually pull out of each other the strength that everybody has and put it together because we'd be solving some of our big problems faster mm. if we did that. I think that's that's the nub of this issue for me. Fantastic. Sherry Dew, thanks so much for being My with pleasure. us today. Remember, after the story is told, after the principles presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what?
Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com forward slash podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging on Therefore What.